Amen. Pray with me. Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity to share together in your word, to be able to think again, perhaps for some for the first time, about what it means that this Friday is good, what is good about it. And in particular, Lord, as we consider the particular title that uh, Jesus bore from the mouth of John the Baptist, God, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts ready to receive uh, your powerful implanted word, that it might bear fruit to your glory. And uh, all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said in the prayer, there are many uh, titles and names uh, that are given uh, to Jesus. We probably think of, uh, of course, Christ, the Messiah, uh, Rabbi, Holy One, Savior, Son of God, King, uh, in a uh, Crudence, uh, Crudence con, uh, Concordance, which was written, I think, at the end of the 1700s, he came up with 198 different titles or names for the Lord Jesus. It sounds like a lot, but given Jesus' own testimony that after his resurrection he was walking with two folks along the road to Emmaus, he said that all of Moses and the prophets, they testify of me. So, indeed, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there could be perhaps 198 different ways that Jesus is spoken of. We're concerning ourselves with only one, the Lamb of God. And that particular title is uttered by John the Baptist, and it's important uh, title uh, related to what we are here for today, for Good Friday. Prior to the scene that was read from us from John 1, where John the Baptist makes this declaration, Jesus had already come to John and was baptized. John had been about the business of responding to God's calling upon him, and he was sent out to Israel in order to call them to repentance, and baptism was going to be a sign of that repentance. Uh, Matthew reports that in those days, uh, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when we read, when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John was one who, when confronted by the religious leaders of his day, asking just as we heard, Who are you? Why are you doing this? He was quick to say, I'm not the Messiah, and I'm not Elijah, and we'll refer to that in a little bit, but I am sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus came to him, and was baptized by him. And it says again in Matthew, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Through that event, John the Baptist's eyes were opened as to the identity of this one, of this Jesus, someone who he would have known before, but certainly not in this particular role. And the fact that it's John the Baptist making this pronouncement is important. There's a, John the Baptist is a very significant figure. I think, you know, often when we think about characters from the Bible, we might think of Moses, of course, or we think of David, we think of even Gideon and Samson before we think of John the Baptist. And yet Jesus declares John the Baptist to be someone that there was no one born of a woman who was greater than John the Baptist. And that has to do with the role that he was playing. If you're familiar with John the Baptist, he was born to aged parents, and he was prophesied over by his father. 
You, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. John the Baptist was a hugely important figure. And he was, for all intents and purposes, accomplishing what we pray for all the time, an awakening, that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people, convicting them of their need for repentance because of their sin. As I said, Jesus said, no one born of a woman was greater than John the Baptist. And in fact, uh, at one point when somebody asks about uh, the question of this Elijah coming, which is a reference to the very last words of the Old Testament, when we're told from Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Jesus identifies John the Baptist with that Elijah. So here's John the Baptist speaking now some 700 years after that prophecy of, uh, of Isaiah, that he quotes, one crying in the wilderness, some 400 years after the time of Malachi. And here, finally, after centuries, the one spoken of has come on the scene. And it's hugely significant. He's a hugely significant figure, powerfully used by God to, uh, to awaken Israel to their need. And what's interesting is that the first recorded public pronouncement we have by John the Baptist of Jesus is what we read in John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when he uses that title, Lamb of God, there is not one real clear antecedent to that title. Perhaps John coined the term, or perhaps under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he speaks it out. And John certainly was one of those who we see elsewhere in the Gospel of John who spoke more than he really knew. We have other instances of that. You might remember when Caiaphas, the high priest, when he was, uh, people were, his, his colleagues were being concerned about the stir that Jesus was calling, causing. He said, it's better for the one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Well, that is true. Pilate himself wrote a plaque, put it above Jesus on the crucified, uh, crucified Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And if you remember when the soldiers, for all intents and purposes, did a coronation ceremony, when they put a crown on his head and draped him in a purple robe and called, Hail, King of the Jews. Here were people doing things that were speaking the truth about who Jesus was, and yet they themselves didn't know it. And John very well might have been in that category when he declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Now, the position of this particular title, as it comes very close to the very beginning of the Gospel of John, and in the mouth of John the Baptist, it's important, as I said. And one could argue, I think, that the rest of the Gospel expands upon this title. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God? So, there's not one particular antecedent to that. So, what does the title refer to? Well, perhaps in John's mind, it might have referred to an idea about who this Messiah was going to be that was current. 
That is, that he would come as that victorious uh, ruler, that one who would, who would drive out the, the occupying forces and restore the glory of Israel once again. And he might have been referring, as, as we read in the book of Revelation, how this victorious lion of the tribe of Judah stands as a slain lamb. There was other imagery like that. But I'm going to suggest that there are three primary prefigurings that we want to have come to mind when we talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God. First, the sacrifice of Isaac. Second, Passover. And then, indeed, from Isaiah 53, which was read. See, I think together they fill out what this title entails, and it brings extraordinary comfort to us. Before we get to the title, though, I want to consider something that John says. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when we think of that term world, often we think of everybody that's living in it. We talk about, you know, the world, and immediately we think that it deals with, well, the physical thing on pitchy stand, but mostly we think of all human beings. But in the Gospel of John, the term world is not neutral. It's not a generic way to refer to everyone who has or, or will live. It's not neutral in its sense. You see, the world in John is that which is against God and under judgment. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, says this, There are no unambiguously positive occurrences of the word world in the Gospel of John. The world, or frequently this world, is not the universe, but the created order, especially of human beings and of human affairs, in rebellion against its maker. Therefore, when John tells us that God loves the world, famous John 3.16, far from being an endorsement of the world, it's a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, that says a great deal about Jesus, but nothing positive about the world. In fact, it tells us the world is in need of a Savior. You know, when it talks about God sending His Son into the world, we have to understand that what's really going on there is Jesus is entering enemy territory. And His purpose for coming is He comes with the intent of rescuing His enemies from themselves. Jesus loves the world, and he gives his life for the world, for his enemies, in order to rescue them from themselves. So behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's coming into enemy territory. Second, before we consider these three prefigurings, is this idea of the Lamb of God. See, this Lamb and all that he signifies is one that's provided by God. In the Mosaic Law, there were those who were bring their various sacrifices. They had to provide something from their flock. They had to provide something from their harvest. But here was a lamb provided by God. This is the lamb of God. So again, if God so loved his enemies that he gave his only son, he does so not because the world is so big, but because it's so bad that God is the one who provides this lamb. So as we consider this particular title, we want to listen for how God acts to rescue people from their sure destruction. And so I said there's three 
prefigurings we're going to consider. And the first is Abraham, and perhaps you know his story. Abraham was chosen by God out of all the people on the, fa- on the face of the earth because through him he makes a covenant, and he's going to, through Abraham and his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And, you know, if you're familiar with the story, Abraham gets a little nervous. He's old. His wife is past the age of bearing children. And so they decide, well, let's use her, uh, let's use her servant girl. And so he goes into Hagar, conceives, and his son is born, and indeed, it's Ishmael. And Ishmael becomes someone who God looks out for because he's one of Abraham's sons, but he's not the one that's going to be the, the, the conduit through which this covenant promise of blessing comes. It's going to be through Isaac. And so at one point then, this young man, Isaac, uh, God, uh, God speaks to, uh, uh, when Isaac's probably a teenager or so, uh, God speaks to him and uh, says to Abraham, his father, says, you know what I want you to do now? I want you to take your son and to sacrifice him. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so what does Abraham do? He does it. He takes his son. They go up. And on their way up, their son recognizes there's something missing. They've got the wood. They've got what they need for the sacrifice, except the sacrifice itself. And so he turns to his father, says, Father, and his father says, yes. He says, where's the lamb? And, God, and Abraham says, son, don't worry. God will provide the lamb. And if you know the story, Abraham follows all the way through to the point of where he's got uh, uh, Isaac bound. He's, he's lying on the wood. Uh, he takes a knife in his hand. He raises it up in the air. He's just about to plunge it in to Isaac when suddenly the angel of the Lord says, don't do this, Abraham. Don't do it. I see that indeed you did not withhold your only son from me. And so they look up, and what do they see? But caught in the thicket is indeed the animal for the sacrifice. So what we learn then from this, at least related to what we're talking about tonight, is that God is the one who's going to provide a lamb so that Isaac doesn't have to die. A lamb is provided so Isaac doesn't have to die. The second figure I'm suggesting is from Passover. And if you're familiar with that, right, Israel had gone down into Egypt, and they'd spent there for many, many years, for, for just generations, and they had come underneath bondage. They were slaves there in Egypt, and God brings Moses to them. And he tells Moses, he says, I want you to say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so to effect this, he sends various plagues, and, uh, and the Pharaoh's just hard as hard. He's variously hard himself, and God hardens his heart. But through nine plagues, no movement. Gets close, but no movement. But then finally, there's going to be the last and final plague that's going to affect this deliverance that God has promised. And it's going to be through the death of the firstborn. 
he says to Moses, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So God is going to judge this rebellious Egypt, right? This enemy territory, this example of those who rebel against God. Even in the face of, of these demonstrations of God's power and his displeasure with Pharaoh in Egypt, nonetheless, he holds fast. He will not bend the knee before Yahweh, the God of Israel. And God is going to pass judgment upon them. But what does he do? He tells Israel to do something so that they will be able to survive this outpouring of God's wrath. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be for you the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, then he's the nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to what you can all eat and make your count for the lamb. And what are they going to do? They're going to kill this lamb. And then God directs them, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And then he says, when I pass through, I will see the blood upon the lintel, the door shall, excuse me, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So here we have a situation in which God uses a lamb, the blood of a lamb, to save people from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God. And so he makes provision for his people, right? He says to redeem them. He's going to set them free out of bondage. And he does this through the blood of a lamb. The last prefiguring, then, I'm suggesting is from Isaiah 53. And in this one we get the closest that we do to the notion of the Lamb of God that John the Baptist speaks of. It was read, the entire passage was read, we won't be dealing with all of it, but in it we'll see that indeed this particular person who is described as being Lamb-like will indeed serve a great purpose for God's people. Often this is called as the suffering servant because he does indeed suffer. But why does he suffer? He suffers on behalf of God's people. And yet that is not how it's perceived. When he is afflicted, the assumption is that he deserves it, that God is pouring out his just wrath upon him. If we look at verse 3, he was despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And then the end of verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted that they looked upon this suffering servant and all of the horror that was being uh, uh, meted out against him, and they assumed that, well, he must deserve it. But that's far from the case. In fact, in verse 4, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He goes on to say, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? No one considered that. Rather, they thought he was being punished. And then in 11, he shall bear their iniquities, and then he bore the sin of many and makes transgressions for the transgressors. So here is this suffering servant who stands in this position of bearing the other person's sin, that he takes that on himself, that it's something that's being done in order that that need, that need for, for, uh, for judgment against sin will fall upon him and not upon the people. But who does all of this? He is certainly the one receiving it, but who is actually doing the punishing? And the remarkable thing is that we learn that it is God. In verse 6, Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. In fact, all of this is what is described at the beginning of chapter 53, is that the arm of the Lord. So, it was God who provides this lamb-like person to bear our iniquities to be the chastisement for our peace. So in the first instance, we have a lamb supplied so that the one who was supposed to die doesn't die. In the second one, we have a lamb supplied in order that the wrath of God, the judgment against rebels, would not come upon those who were covered by the blood of the lamb. And in this last, we have a lamb-like person who himself bears our iniquities. In fact, through him and through his suffering is our road to peace. So on Good Friday, when we look upon the cross of Good Friday, what do we see? We see a lamb given by God as a substitute to die in the place of another. We see a lamb given, directed by God as a substitute who provides shelter from the wrath of God. And we see a lamb as a substitute, a person to bear God's judgment against sin. Now, perhaps all this was in John the Baptist's mind when he made his pronouncement. But again, speaking more than he knows, he rightly identified Jesus he is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there's one other thing I want us to consider about this, that the Lamb of God deals not only with the fact of human sin, but the effects of human sin. If we go back to Isaiah 53 again, listen again. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone someone people turned away from. He was despised. We didn't value him. He was himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. It's more than just accomplishing this atoning work through his, through his shed blood, through his death, his substitutionary death. He actually also addresses human existence in all of its brokenness. When we see Jesus as the Lamb of God in the midst of his ministry, we discover him weeping outside the tomb of Lazarus, a close friend of his who had died. We read of a deep gut reaction that he has when he sees the crowds who he describes as like sheep without a shepherd. He's moved to compassion for a woman whose only son has died and it leaves her in this vulnerable place in that culture 
and he raises him from the dead. No, this one, this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, deals not only with the fact of sin, but the effects of sin as well. We do indeed have a Lamb who understands what it means to live in this world. We see him dealing with it, with his healings, his deliverances from demons, his restoring people to community and fellowship, his raising people from the dead. But it goes deeper than that. If you're familiar with the events of Good Friday, at one point Jesus cries out and lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, when indeed the sins of the world are rested upon him and cuts him off from his God. He despairs in that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? An experience that he had never, ever experienced in his entire existence from conception until this moment that he ever feels separated from God the Father. Sin never got in the way. Ignorance never got in the way. Pride never got in the way. Nothing got in the way of this relationship except our sin. And at that moment, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm going to suggest that in that moment, he addresses our despair. This is not to suggest that we'll not experience despair. And that, that much is obvious. At some point, if it hasn't been already, it will be in your life. But on the cross, Jesus absorbs all the anger, all the violence, all the rejection, all the sorrow that's meted out in a broken world that causes us to despair. And that moment is a down payment on joy that will be realized in full in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to what the Revelation says. Familiar language, probably. John writing, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God was with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When we're told that in the new heavens and the new earth there'll be no more sighing, no more weeping, it's a tacit acknowledgement that until that time there will be sighing and weeping. But what purchased this pain-free, this despair-free future? It's Jesus, the Lamb of God on the cross who takes away the sin of the world. Because we read, indeed, in Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah stands as a slain lamb. So the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world deals not only with the fact of our sin, but also the effects of our sin. He stands in our place on that cross, taking the punishment due us, but on that cross he stands in our space and in our place, and despairs, and he shares our brokenness. He experiences what it's like to not be in communion with God, something which was profoundly more radical for him than it ever is for us, but nonetheless, we suffer because we do not really know God. 
not in the way that Jesus knew God. And because of that, we lose so much. Because of that, we long for the new heavens and the new earth when no longer will we be clothed with sin. No longer will we have to deal with our ignorance, with just the temptations that surround us that we're so prone to. It'll all be gone because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It'll all be gone. And we will stand in that moment in joy and complete peace and fullness, something which we have yet to experience, but we will experience. Why? Because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, on Good Friday, we acknowledge this work of Christ upon the cross, this sacrifice. He lays down his life so that we ourselves might have life. And yet, when we read something like, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, we have to be careful. This is not some sort of pronouncement of some sort of universal cosmic amnesty. And that is as it should be. Because God is righteous and God is just. I don't know about you, but when presidents start handing out presidential pardons to a bunch of dirtbags, doesn't it make you angry? I mean, it's one thing if somebody has been, you know, you know wrongly locked in a, in a prison for years and finally the president exercises his judicial, his power to say, you know what, it's time that you are set free and it's time that you get some of your life back. But when some low life, some friend of some powerful person gets to walk scot-free just because of a power and can sign a signature, don't you feel that injustice? You do. Because that's biblical to feel that injustice. And so when it talks about that God sends the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, this is not, as I said, just some sort of, you know, broad brush. Just, it's all done. Don't have to worry about it. No, there's a need on the part of people like you and me, sinful human beings who need this Lamb and all of that he's done, his substitutionary work, his saving us from the wrath, his bearing the, the penalty due our sin. We need that for us. And the way we get there, by placing our faith, our hope, our trust in that Lamb. Without Jesus, we're still enemies. Without Jesus, we can't save ourselves. But he's the one who came into enemy territory to rescue us from ourselves. And he does so as the Lamb of God. You know, the Gospel of John is, is wonderful in the way it portrays Jesus and uh, this high uh, vision of, of, of his divinity and starts that way. But you know the intent of the book? Why does John write what he writes? Why does he include what he includes? Because he wants people to know who Jesus is. Towards the end of the book, he writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. You know, when John the Baptist declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he goes on to say later that he's also the Son of God. 
And here is John echoing that, John the evangelist, echoing that at the end of his gospel, saying that if we will listen to the testimony of John the Baptist and all the others who are recorded and all the incidents that are here held within just this one gospel in the New Testament, and we will hear it and we will embrace it by faith, what do we receive? We receive life, eternal life, because of our faith, our hope placed in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't know everybody in this room, but I do know that everybody in this room needs Jesus. Everybody in this room needs what the Lamb of God brings to us. God sent that Lamb. It was provided by God for you and for me, people like us, sinners in need of a Savior. And so I want to encourage you on this Good Friday this day when we acknowledge this great sacrifice, this great gift, this Lamb of God given, that we might place our hope fully in Him and in no other. Peter, at one particular moment in the history of the church, says, you know, there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a definite article, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to invite you, I want to invite all of us to look upon that Lamb slain upon the altar, that cross, and look upon that and see in that the love of God, the love of Jesus, the love for you, enemies, the love for me, an enemy, and see that he has acted to save us from ourselves and to place our hope in him and in him alone. It's a gift. It's a great gift. It's the, it's, it's the life eternal gift given to you, given to me, given to all who place their hope in Christ. So again, John the Baptist proclaims the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He spoke more than he knew, but he spoke rightly. Jesus is that Lamb. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we place our hope in him, and our sin is born away. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity to meditate for a bit on the realities of this day, to be able to refresh our memories or perhaps for some learn for the first time why it is that this day is called Good Friday. From a human perspective, how could it be good? The leader is put to death, he's wrongly tried, he's mocked, he's spit upon, cruelly tortured, and dies. Nothing good about that, unless we have eyes to see. And so I pray, Lord, that we will have eyes to see, each one of us in this room, to see really what's going on, and that we will see in this gift, this lamb, whom you place upon an altar, and who you put to death, on our behalf, to rescue us from ourselves. God, that we will see that and rest and gain comfort from it. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can hear your cry of despair and know that you understand what it's like to be in this world. Such a place of of amazing contradiction, of beauty and love and joy and sorrow, pain, and despair. 
But Lord, you have dealt with all that causes that despair, and we look forward to the day when we will rejoice free from all that burdens a sinful soul. And so between now and then, Lord God, sustain us, keep us close to you. Lord, you, uh, I'm reminded of how you spoke to Israel, that you were going to bring them out of bondage in order that they might be with you. And that's what we want, Lord, to be with you. So we commit ourselves to that and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.